0: The Christian Ministry, with an Inquiry into the Causes of Its Inefficiency, by Charles Bridges. Part 2. General Causes of the Want of Success in the Christian Ministry. The prophet's complaint, who hath believed our report, has applied to every successive ministry in the church. It was echoed in reference even to the ministry of him who spake as never man spake, who retained a listening multitude hanging upon his lips and wondering at the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth. It was again repeated under the apostolic dispensation, clothed as it was, with the demonstration of the Spirit and with power." and it has ever since been expressive of the experience of faithful laborers in the Lord's harvest. A young minister, indeed, speaking his message from the feeling of a full heart, and without an accurate calculation of the cost, may anticipate a cordial conviction and reception of the truth as the almost immediate result. But painful experience will soon correct such unwarranted expectations. The power of Satan, the current of sin, and the course of this world all combine to impress our work with the character of a special conflict. But as complaint should lead to inquiry, and surely no inquiry can be more important, we will proceed to mark a few of the more general causes that operate unfavorably upon our work. Chapter 1 the Scriptural Warrant and Character of Ministerial Success Together with the Symptoms of Want of Success A few remarks upon these preliminary topics will introduce the discussion of the general subject. Number 1. It may be laid as the ground of our inquiry that the warrant of ministerial success is sure. This indeed is involved in the character of our work while it supplies the spring to diligence and perseverance in it. In the spiritual, as in the temporal harvest, the field is prepared for the reaper's sickle. The providential dispensations also, appointing to the several laborers their work, have the same security of successful results, grounded, not upon any efforts of human wisdom, zeal, or suasion, but upon the word forever settled in heaven. Indeed, every fertilizing shower is the renewed symbol and pledge of the divine promise. Thus, fruitfulness ever attended the labors of the Old Testament ministers. It was the end of the ordination of the first Christian ministers. It is the seal affixed to ministerial devotedness the terms of the promise are most express. The day of Pentecost exhibited a large display of its faithfulness, and the apostles ever afterwards, whether preaching to persecuting Jews or to blind idolaters, found the same seal of their apostleship, so that, wherever the gospel was sent, and so long as it was continued, the work of success invariably proceeded. Now, as bearing the same commission, we have the same warrant of success, the sure foundation of the word of the Lord, which endureth forever. The divine sovereignty, to which we would bow with a most implicit and adoring subjection, is the righteous government of a faithful God. We must not therefore place his sovereignty in opposition to his faithfulness, A measure of success is assured to our work. Some seed shall fall on the good ground, as well as by the wayside, or upon the stony or thorny soil. There shall, at least, be an handful of corn in the earth, on the top of the mountains. The purpose is beyond all the powers of earth and hell to defeat. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. The promise is sealed to the exercise of faith, though the distribution of it in measure is often marked by an unsearchable but infinitely wise and gracious appointment. Number two. In marking the specific character of this warranted success, we may observe that visible success is various. There are some that plant, others that water. Some that lay the foundation, others that build upon it. Some are designed for immediate, some for ulterior work. Yet all have their testimony and acceptance in the Lord's own time and way. Success is not limited to the work of conversion. Where, therefore, the ministry fails to convert we may still be assured that it convinces, reproves, exhorts, enlightens, or consoles someone in some measure at all times. It never returns to God void when delivered in the simplicity of faith, nor will it, under the most unpromising circumstances, fail of accomplishing his unchangeable purpose. But we must remember also that present success is not always visible. Apparent must not be the measure of the real result. There is often an undercurrent of piety which cannot be brought to the surface. There may be solid work advancing underground without any sensible excitement. As we observe, the seed that produces the heaviest grain lies the longest in the earth. We are not always the best judges of the results of our ministry. Mr. Scott thus encourages a clergyman from his own ministerial experience. My prevalent opinion is that you are useful, but do not see the effect. Even at Ravenstone, I remember complaining in a New Year's sermon that for a whole twelve month I had seen no fruit of my preaching. Yet it appeared within the course of the next twelve months that not less than ten or twelve had been brought to consider their ways during that discouraging year. Besides others, I trust, that I did not know of. The sick and deathbed often gladden our heart with the manifestation of the hidden fruit of our work. And though something is graciously brought out for our encouragement— yet much more probably is concealed to exercise our diligence, and from a wise and tender regard to our besetting temptations. Indeed, who of any of us may not detect the principle of self mingling itself alike with depression and exultation, greatly needing our master's rebuke for our more valuable effectiveness? Under all our trials, therefore, we must be careful that no present apparent failure weaken our assurance of the ultimate success of faithful and diligent perseverance. Symptoms of success are also frequently mistaken. They are at best but doubtful signs. If our people crowd to hear the word if they love our persons, admire our discourses, and are brought to a general confession of sinfulness or to a temporary interest in our message. Nor must we, on the other hand, too hastily conclude upon their apparent want of diligence in the means of grace or of interest in our parochial system. Family hindrances or outward crosses may restrain the improvement of Christian privileges. The want of tact, the influence of retired habits, or the necessary demands of the domestic sphere may impede communications with our plans, so that often the kingdom of God may be established in real power, yet with little of outward observation. The complaint of inefficiency may therefore sometimes be unwarranted as the disappointment of a too-sanguine mind as the failure of efforts calculated upon in our own wisdom and attempted in our own strength, or the blast of expectations indulged without due consideration of a scriptural basis or of individual or local difficulties. Adverting also to subordinate benefits— Our manifestation of the truth commends itself to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Here is a Christian standard of morals opposed to the principles of the world. Here is a divine rule taking cognizance of the heart, charging guilt upon numberless items that before had passed as harmless, and thus laying the foundation for more evangelical conviction. Here is, therefore, the restraint and counteraction of much positive evil, and a large infusion of wholesome moral obligation throughout the Mass. Besides, as regards the gospel, the constant dwelling on the Savior's name and work familiarizes him with our people as a refuge, a friend in trouble. It is no small advantage in the storm, to know where to seek for safe anchorage? And who can tell how many have found such a refuge in distress from the recollections of the gospel hitherto neglected, but now applied with sovereign power to their hearts? More directly also, ministerial success must be viewed as extending beyond present appearances. The seed may lie under the clods till we lie there, and then spring up. Of the prophets of old, that saying was true, one soweth, and another reapeth. They sowed the seed, and the apostles reaped the harvest. As our Lord reminded them, other men labored, and ye are entered into their labors. And is it no ground of comfort that our work may be the seed time of a future harvest? Or should we neglect to sow because we may not reap the harvest? Shall we not share the joy of the harvest even though we be not the immediate reapers of the field? Is it not sufficient encouragement to cast our bread upon the waters that we shall find it after many days? In the morning, as the wise man exhorts us, sow thy seed, and in the evening withhold not thine hand, for thou knowest not whether shall prosper either this or that, or whether they both alike shall be good. It has been admirably observed on this subject, Quote, In order to prevent perpetual disappointment, we must learn to extend our views, To seek for the real harvest produced by spiritual labors only in their immediate and visible results would be not less absurd than to take our measure of infinite space from that limited prospect which the mortal eye can reach, or to estimate the never-ending ages of eternity by a transitory moment of the present time. It often happens that God withholds his blessing for a time— In order that, when the net is cast on the right side, it may be clearly seen that the multitude of fishes enclosed are of the Lord's giving. Lest men should attribute their success to a wrong cause, and should sacrifice unto their own net, and burn incense unto their own drag. Only two souls appear as the immediate fruit of the vision of the man of Macedonia, But how fruitful was the ultimate harvest in the flourishing churches of that district? Our plain and cheering duty is therefore to go forward, to scatter the seed, to believe and wait. Yet must there be expectancy as well as patience. The warrant of success is assured, not only as regards an outward reformation, but a spiritual change of progressive and universal influence. The fruit of ministerial labor is not indeed always visible in its symptoms, nor immediate in its results, nor proportioned to the culture. Faith and patience will be exercised, sometimes severely so. But after a painstaking, weeping seed time, we shall bring our sheaves with rejoicing and lay them upon the altar of God, that the offering up of them might be acceptable being sanctified by the Holy Ghost. Meanwhile, we must be aware of saying, Let him make speed and hasten his work that we may see it. The measure and the time are with the Lord. We must let him alone with his own work. Ours is the care of service. His is the care of success. The Lord of the harvest must determine when and what and where the harvest shall be. Number three. But notwithstanding this justly warranted expectation, the want of ministerial success is most extensively and mournfully felt. We are sometimes ready to believe and to complain that none labor so unfruitfully as ourselves, Men of the world expect their return in some measure proportion to their labor. Alas, with us too often is our strength labor and sorrow, and at best attended with a very scanty measure of effect. And we are compelled to realize the awful sight of immortal souls perishing under our very eye, dead to the voice of life and love, and madly listening to the voice that plunges them into perdition. it may be well to state a few of the most decisive symptoms of this unfruitfulness. When our public services are unprofitable, when iniquity abounds, and the mass of our people continue in an impenitent and ungodly state, when there is an unconcern among us for the honor and cause of God, when there is a general want of appetite for the sincere milk of the word, And the public worship of the Sabbath and the weekly lecture, if there be any, are but thinly attended. When there are not instances of conversion in our Sunday schools, and but few of our young people are drawn into the ways of pleasantness and peace. When the children of deceased Christian parents, instead of being added spiritually to the church, continue in and of the world when small addition is made to the select flock who truly commemorate the death of their Savior in the Holy Sacrament. These and similar appearances may well agitate the question with most anxious concern, is the Lord among us or not? Symptoms so dark and discouraging loudly call for increasing earnestness of supplication. Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens, that thou wouldest come down, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence. O Lord, revive thy work. Among the more general causes of this failure, we may mark the withholding of divine influence, the enmity of the natural heart, the power of Satan, local hindrances, and the want of clearness in the ministerial call. Each of these will now come before us. Chapter 2. The Withholding of Divine Influence, the Main Cause of the Want of Ministerial Success The scriptural warrant leads us to entertain high expectations from the labors of the Christian ministry, and yet in every sphere of labor these bright prospects are more or less overcast, as if a sanguine temperament had unduly heightened our anticipations. Much cultivation, as we have lately observed, is sometimes bestowed upon the soil with little proportionate success. The same means and instruments that had been formerly productive of important benefits fail in their accustomed effect. Now, who would cultivate his lands at considerable and disappointed cost without inquiring into the causes of the failure of his just expectations. And must not we ask, what is wanting to give effect to that order of means, the power of which has been often exhibited and which we know to be constituted in the purpose of God for the renovation of the world? Mr. Cecil has remarked, quote, There is a manifest want of spiritual influence in the ministry of the present day. I feel it in my own case, and I see it in that of others." End quote. This remark sufficiently explains the symptoms of that barrenness which prevails among us. For not more needful are the influences of heaven to fertilize the soul and promote vegetation than is the heavenly influence to give quickening power to the word. In vain, therefore, do we plough and sow. If the Lord command the clouds, that they rain no rain upon the field of the spiritual husbandry. Let us advert to scriptural testimony. To this source is traced the want of effect produced by the first promulgation of the will of God, confirmed as it was by signs and wonders, together with the unbelief of Israel in the prophetic report, and even in the ministry of the Son of God. Our Lord insists upon the necessity of divine influence in order to come to him and to abide in him. The want of this influence rendered his public ministry comparatively inefficient. Though his doctrine was from God, though his character was perfect, and though daily miracles attested his mission, yet little appears to have been done. While Peter, a poor fisherman, Endued with this almighty power becomes the instrument of converting more under a single sermon than probably his master had done throughout his whole ministry. The other apostles preached both in collective and individual instances with the same demonstration of the spirit and power. At Antioch, the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. Lydia attended unto the things that were spoken of Paul, not because Paul was an eloquent preacher, or she an attentive hearer, though in this disposition alone can the blessing be expected, but because the Lord opened her heart. Thus does the uniform tenor of the sacred records mark the power of the Spirit as the seal and confirmation of the word and as the life-giving influence diffused through the church from the time that the first lively stone was laid upon the foundation of God. And therefore, the withholding of this blessing must necessarily be attended with proportionate painful symptoms of ministerial inefficiency. The reason of the thing confirms this view of the subject. Admitting the scriptural statements of man's natural condition, dead and trespasses and sins, having his understanding darkened, his mind the very principle of enmity to the truth even under its most attractive form, and his stony heart insensible to its blessings. How palpable is the need of power from on high! "'Can a well-composed oration,' Charnock asks,' setting out all the advantages of life and health, raise a dead man or cure a diseased body? You may as well exhort a blind man to behold the sun and prevail as much. No man ever yet imagined that the strewing a dead body with flowers would raise it to life. No more can the urging a man spiritually dead with eloquent motives ever make him to open his eyes and to stand upon his feet. The working of his mighty power is a title too high for the capacity of mere moral exhortations. A mere suasion does not confer a strength, but supposes it in a man, for he is only persuaded to use the power which he hath already. Quote. The clearest instructions may furnish the understanding, but they have no power to sway the will, Except to what is suitable and connatural to its native suggestions and habits. Whenever, therefore, the gospel successfully influences the heart, it is not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. And does not observation and experience add further confirmation to this subject? Do we not know accomplished and devoted ministers who are less honored in their work than others of their brethren of far inferior qualifications? And do we not find differences of effect under the same ministry and even under the same sermons which can only be explained by the sovereign dispensation of divine influence? Has not personal experience shown us that the same motives operate in the same service with very different measures of influence? And do we not realize the same difference in our ministerial experience, in our pastoral as well as in our pulpit work, that sometimes a single sentence is clothed with almighty power, at other times it is only the feeble breath of a worm? Quote, Have you never... Charnock again asks in his usual terseness, discoursed with some profane loose fellow so pressingly that he seemed to be shaken out of his excuses for his sinful course, yet not shaken out of his sin, that you might as soon have persuaded the tide at full sea to retreat, or a lion to change his nature, as have overcome him by all your arguments.' so that it is not the faint breath of man or the rational consideration of the mind that are able to do this work without the mighty pleadings and powerful operations of that great paraclete or advocate, the Spirit, to alter the temple of the soul." This, then, is the main source of ministerial success. Until the Spirit be poured upon us from on high... The wilderness, notwithstanding the most diligent cultivation, must remain a wilderness still. But why is this promised blessing withheld? Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. Yet we must not slumber in acquiescence without self-inquiry. Do we fervently seek and cherish this influence? Do we actively stir up the gift of God which is within us? Above all, does our pulpit set out that full exhibition of our divine master, which alone commands this heavenly blessing? The encouragement of prayer and faith are always the same. God is indeed absolutely sovereign in the distribution of his blessing, but by his command to seek he has pledged himself that we shall not seek in vain. Having freely promised, he will faithfully perform. Let all means be used in diligence, but in dependence, in self-denial, but in self-renunciation. Let not ministers be unduly exalted among their people. We are only instruments by whom they believe, and a dependence on our labor may provoke the grand agent, who giveth not his glory to another, To wither the most effective ministry, that these idolaters may know that they are but men. We may be reduced to ask, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? Who can accomplish more by one feeble sentence from the feeblest instrument than we can do without him by the most powerful preaching? Chapter 3 The enmity of the natural heart a main cause of the want of ministerial success. The office of the Christian ministry might seem to command a successful issue of the work. It is the ministry of reconciliation, where the offended party stoops to make the first overtures of peace and sends his ambassadors to beseech by them and pray the rebels in his stead, Be ye reconciled to God. Such a display of disinterested condescension, infinite humility, and compassionate tenderness might have been expected to give resistless efficacy to the message. The rich fruits of everlasting love are brought to the door of those who are most deeply interested in it and whose need of the blessing is inexpressibly great. Such a promulgation of mercy, given to men in guileless ignorance and urgent need, would meet with a ready and universal welcome. But here it meets with a resisting medium. The avenues of approach are barred against its entrance, and the success is limited within comparatively narrow bounds. By the terms of the commission, it is preached to every creature, but the disproportionate effect reminds us of the solemn and sententious declaration, many be called but few chosen. If indeed we were as many which corrupt the word of God, if we would lower its requisitions to a worldly standard or to a corrupt heart, we should have our reward, purchased indeed at an infinite cost, in the praise of men. But if, as of sincerity, as of God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ, renouncing the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God, we must not wonder to hear it repeated, I hate him, for he doth not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. Nor is this opposition confined to the world, so called. In the professing church, a revulsion against the truth of God as a whole, such as Mr. Scott found manifested in rejecting the practical enforcement of Christian doctrine, marks the same principle of resistance. And indeed, Whoever pricks the conscience of his hearers closely without producing repentance will soon find them either absentees from his ministry or unwilling listeners, if not open opponents, end quote. Bishop of Winchester. Thus our whole course is a struggle against the mighty current of sin, flowing out of that restless bias of the natural heart, which upon the highest authority is declared to be enmity against God. This hindrance, therefore, to the reception of the gospel must not be placed to the minister's account. Ignorance, eccentricity, inconsistency, want of conciliation and address will indeed be an occasion of calling forth this enmity. A defective exhibition of the spirit of the cross greatly aggravates the offense of the cross but it must be remembered that the ministration of the gospel from an angel's mouth would stir up the natural principle of degenerate man. What could be conceived more attractive than the combination of dignity, humility, patience, and love that marked the ministry of the Son of God? Yet was it universally despised and rejected? his doctrine was most offensive to the natural prejudices of the unhumbled heart. His general statements were listened to with the interest of curiosity and the desire of hearing some new thing, but their personal application to the consciences of his hearers, the certain reproach of his cross, the relinquishment of all that was held dear for his service, the prostrate submission required for the reception of his truth, all combine to produce the murmuring among themselves, the complaint of the intolerable hardness of his sayings, and the resolution to abandon their temporary profession. The innate opposition existing between the substance and the objects of our ministry offers therefore a material impediment to our success. We speak to those whose attention is already preoccupied whose affections have been long pre-engaged and whose hearts are hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. The truth, therefore, never comes into contact with a sincere and honest heart. Enmity is the concentrated essence of man's depravity. It is at once the cause and the effect of that moral or spiritual darkness which shuts out the entrance of light and offers difficulties to the process of enlightening the eyes of the understanding, unconquerable by any force short of heavenly influence. The power that slays the enmity opens the heart to the perception, obedience, and love of the truth, and to a full possession of the inestimable blessings of our office. This audio recording was read by Michael Ives. I hope you found it enlightening and edifying. Visit westportexperiment.com for more audio resources, and where I write about parish missions, the care of souls, and all things reformed.